Hello and welcome to the all-new season of Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast that aims to separate the facts from the fiction when it comes to stories about the ancient world. For this episode, I'm getting to my New Year's resolutions just a few months late, so I've asked the gang if they can help me make good choices based on advice from their areas of expertise. Let me refresh your memory on the group that make up the podcast. First up, we have Mrs Goody Two-Shoes, Senya. She's here to share facts from the ancient Romans. Goodness gracious Meg is here to shed some light on the very best ancient Greeks. Barney knows what's good, and he also knows an awful lot about the ancient Near East. And they say good things come to those who wait, so I'll introduce myself last. I'm Flo, and I don't know much about the ancient world, but I'm ready to be a good student and learn with you, dear listener, about the history of being good. Right, so if I'm going to be really good for Lent this year, is there anyone from history who I might seek out as a sort of inspirational figure that I can follow as my guide to be good? Well, you could have a chat with Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. So he's one of the five good emperors. Now, this is like a name that was given to this lot of emperors afterwards, mainly by Edward Gibbon, who who wrote his famous Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Um, so the five good emperors are Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, yay, Antoninus Pius, and then Marcus Aurelius is the last one. So they're called the good emperors for a couple of reasons, but the main one being that the empire was at its most prosperous and most stable during their reigns. And then after that, Marcus Aurelius um, is succeeded by Commodus and, and things start to go a bit wrong, gladiator style. But yeah, Marcus Aurelius is quite famous for having written the meditations. And it's basically him journaling throughout his life. He writes down a few things every day, just like poignant thoughts that he has or um, introspective um, things that he's thinking. They don't really follow a narrative. Um, They do tie into a brand of philosophy called stoicism which is all about yeah striving to be the best person that you can not letting yourself be negatively affected by things that happen to you or bad things or bad people so yeah it's kind of like you know I know I know a lot of um men uh really find Marcus Aurelius's meditations very helpful because it's all about like self-consideration self-improvement you know making sure that you're confident on the inside and not letting uh, external influences um, affect the way you see yourself uh, and affect the way you behave. Is he like the antithesis of Andrew Tate then you would say? Yes <laughs> yeah. yeah put only good things out there not horrendous misogynistic vitriol. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Powerful stuff there Zenia. <laughs> It's, it sounds a little bit like toxic positivity, like only be good. Everything is good and everything is fine. You've just got to be good. Have you heard about toxic positivity? Um, yeah, it's it's not entirely like that because he's, he's also kind of, it, it's kind of depressed toxic positivity, if that makes sense. It's like people are <laughs> rubbish, but don't let them make you rubbish. <laughs> nice. Okay. I think that's quite good. I think that might be helpful to follow. Very useful. It's uh, it's like a don't let the baddies grind you down sort of thing. Yeah, baddies. <laughs> and and what what is stoicism? Can you can you define it a bit more for me? What is stoicism? So, stoicism, according to uh, a definition that I found on Daily Stoic, 
is a tool in the pursuit of self-mastery, perseverance, and wisdom. So you use stoicism to improve your life. Um, but it's not like, it, in, in terms of philosophy, it's not an inquiring line of philosophy. It's not like, what is life? Um, <laughs> or what are we made of? It's more like, how can I make myself resilient and like a, like a better person? Oh, cool. I quite like that. That's very sensible, I think. I don't want to sit around in a toga or naked, as I've heard you, you, you tell us before, you know, reclined back, contemplating existence. I just want to get on with things. So I think if I was in the ancient world, I'd definitely follow Marcus Aurelius. That does sound good to me. So you mentioned he was part of the good emperors, the five yes. good emperors? Five good emperors, yeah. Is that all? Is that all that there were? There were only five during the entire Roman Empire? <laughs> I mean, when you look at the grand scheme of things, I think it's also because they were preceded and succeeded by really, really quite terrible ones. So the one before Nerva was Domitian, who was really horrible. Uh, and the one after Marcus Aurelius was his son Commodus, who was pretty mad. <laughs> It's a bit like it's a bit like nowadays looking back and going, actually, Golden Brown wasn't actually that bad because, by comparison, there's been some shockers in 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 command of the country. Okay, it's like having yeah, yeah like Rishi Sunak being prime minister after Liz Truss, and you're like, oh, brilliant, thank you, thank, thank goodness. goodness. <laughs> are there also bad and ugly emperors? Hmm. Oh, there are so many bad emperors. I'm gonna have to go to town on the bad episode. <laughs> Uh, in terms of ugly, it depends on your perspective. And actually, I've got quite an interesting like link between ugly and good. So we might revisit it in the ugly episode, but I'm, I'm just going to mention it now. So Roman art goes like swings in between the classical style, which is like portraying emperors or, or uh, senators or anyone who can have their statue made, portraying themselves in the classical, i.e. Greek style which is a little bit idealized. It's like, you know, everyone has a six pack in the classical style. Everyone's super muscly. You're more likely to be naked than not. Uh, whereas, and Hadrian really likes having himself portrayed in this style because he's a big fan of the Greeks. But the opposite of that, which is kind of more early Roman, like late Republic type Roman, is the veristic style. And that comes from Verus Truth. So the idea is that you portray yourself exactly the way you are, warts and all. And some of them did have quite a lot of warts. So that's also associated with another kind of goodness uh, in, the, in the Roman world, which was Romanitas. So the like essence of being Roman. And that was regarded as absolutely the best possible thing you could be. So um, when Romans look back and write their histories, a lot of how they kind of evaluate whether someone in history was good or not was not necessarily like, were they well behaved? Were they generous? Were they kind? Which are more sort of post-Christian values. Instead, they evaluate these people as, as to whether they had a lot of Romanitas. So whether they were honest, upstanding, um, like good leaders, good speakers, self-sacrificing, but also quite ruthless on the battlefield. So, you know, no kindness there, just success. They really honoured success. So it's a bit like Instagram versus reality with that sort of truthful, veristic portrayal. Absolutely, yeah. Fab. Okay, so Barney, in the in the 
ancient Near East, is there anyone uh, inspirationally good that I could follow there? Well, I think trying to work out what's sort of like good and bad in the ancient Near East um, isn't quite as easy as just pointing to like a philosopher or a certain philosophical line of thought on goodness because they didn't really write about goodness as an abstract concept. So you have to kind of look for examples of what those cultures of the ancient Near East held to be good things in other literature. So you could look to, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about legal texts, for example, you could look to what sort of examples are set by the law and discern from that what's good. Um, But of course, because it's a new season and because I can't go very long without talking about Gilgamesh, I will probably use him as an example. Whilst not everybody in ancient Babylonia, for example, or ancient Sumer, might be able to live the life that Gilgamesh lived as a king, um, he is kind of analysed as good and bad at various times in the Epic of Gilgamesh, because at the very start, he's a very bad king. So it's kind of like a redemption arc for him. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's got character development. Nice. But yeah, so during the Epic of Gilgamesh, he starts off as a bad king, but I think I'll I'll probably come back to that next week, because that's about like fulfilling certain roles. Um, But one of the main tensions of the Epic of Gilgamesh is mortality versus immortality, right? And at one point during the narrative, he's quite stressed out on his journey. He's lost Enkidu. Um, He's on his way to search for the flood survivor, um, who he thinks will hold the the key to immortal life for him. And he meets this proprietor of a tavern, what old translators might call like an alewife, called Siduri, um, who gives him the advice that he is human and should accept that he will die. Um, And therefore, the best way for him to live his life is by having a full belly, by, you know, making merry and dancing and playing and having clean clothes and clean hair, a clean body, and being happy with children and family and stuff like that. Which, to be honest, sounds like, you know, almost common sense advice for a good life because it's based in satisfaction and acceptance. And Gilgamesh hears this advice and goes, nope, don't want it. <laughs> and then moves on. <laughs> Thank you for your very reasoned explanation of how I could be happy in my life. Not interested. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the point is that he's carrying on to try and seek immortality. So for him, that is the kind of the definition of how his life could be best led is forever. (laughs) It's not about quality. (laughs) It's about quantity. (laughs) Me with pizza. (laughs) Papa John's. (laughs) No, I draw a line there. That kind of reminds me a little bit of, of like Achilles in the Iliad, but not quite. Mm. So like Achilles, Achilles doesn't want to live forever, does he? But he wants like his name to live forever, right? Yeah, exactly. He's having that classic debate that we've all had between, you know, short, sweet, glorious life where your name then lives forever or just having a sort of normal, normal average length life. Um, but you don't have any any eternal glory afterwards. Uh and that's his that's his like central debate. And I think that does play into what they thought was good. Kleos, glory, is good for for at least sort of Homeric Greek thinking. Well, right, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna immediately ask everyone, what does everyone want to do? Do they want to have their name live on forever, but they have a short, sweet, fantastic life? Or do you wanna have a really long life that's kind of boring but fine? And you get forgotten. Right, Meg, go. Um, immediately fade into obscurity. No interest in eternal glory. Uh, <laughs> I want to die old and utterly forgettable. Nice. 
Barney? I'll, I'll go even faster than Meg. I, I hope that people start to forget me whilst I'm still alive. Nice. <laughs> Wait, who was that? Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's no, no eternal glory for me. I, I'd be happy. It'd be nice to leave a, a small mark, but like in an anonymous way. Oh, nice. Mm. Ooh. Altruistic. Ooh, yeah, interesting. All right, sure. You're very good. <laughs> Senya, what's your choice? Okay, I think mine's going to be quite cheesy because I, I definitely used to want my name in lights, um, but now my priorities have been reevaluated, and I just want to be a good mum to my girl. Oh, you win. <laughs> I don't want her to forget me. <laughs> I just want to finish with my viewpoint that I would gladly, obviously, sacrifice my life for my baby that I've just had um but I would want to do it in an anonymous way and no one would know about it uh and also I I would like people to forget about me now starting from now this is getting quite um what Aristotle might call virtue signaling (laughs) 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 but Aristotle was all about virtue he thought that is that is the good is is the virtuous um the virtue virtue inside the soul it's kind of excellence of the soul so Flo and Xenia I think you both just displayed some good good virtue there by offering to like lay down your lives for your children Uh, well all right let's not go hasty here I was just doing it for show like I I (laughs) love definitely sacrifice my life for my kid um but don't forget about me because I am quite needy um but I too would choose to die in obscurity. That's fine by me. I'm quite happy with a comfortable, boring life. I um I might just be able to round this all off then with the way that Gilgamesh does ultimately achieve his sort of immortality. Because uh, it, it's it yeah it links back to what you said about Achilles and your name being remembered. Because ultimately he he doesn't achieve immortal life. Um, and in fact, in his quest for immortal life, he accidentally gives immortal life to a snake instead of himself. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like quite a big mistake. Like... Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be an, an etiology, like a, an explanation for the natural phenomenon of um, snakes shedding their skin. Oh. He somehow ends up giving the plant of immortality, the plant of rejuvenation to this snake or a snake makes off with it or something like that. And then that's that's supposed to be that sort of regeneration that snakes show, even though snakes do die. In a way, Barney, he did successfully achieve eternal life because there's that famous quote that goes, there are three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to the grave. The third is that moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the last time. So in a way... Gilgamesh will never die, you know, as long as we've got the Against the Law podcast and Google, which I think is probably going to be forever. Exactly. And and actually, that's that's more or less what happens at the end of the text. And I, sorry, I went off on a big digression there, but it's realised that his name will live on if he is a good king um, and he does his duties to protect his people and serve the gods and maintain the city of Uruk where he rules and the wa- the walls of which are supposed to stand forever. So that's his that's his immortality, even though it's not for him, his name sort of carries on. That snake though, still living its best life. That little snaky <laughs> baddie. <laughs> <laughs> that snake is still out there, presumably, like Yeah. Just kind of out. I was just gonna I was gonna make a joke about do you guys know that song written in the stars? by tiny temper <laughs> yeah of course just the song when barney was talking about the snake i was gonna be like 
weirdly that's also how written in the stars by tiny temper ends um but i think the moment's passed with a snake making off with the plant of rejuvenation yeah i thought it would be funny but i've I've explained it now and it's not so (laughs) (laughs) just really dissecting that joke thanks guys so meg i might come over to you for some plato goodness is that all right Oh, some Plato goodness. You're in for a treat. So do you know the word eudaimonia or eudaimonia? No, but it sounds like some kind of period pain related thing. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, it's very much the opposite. It's like the good, the good life, well-being. So eu, E-U um, in, in Greek is like good, sort of positive. And then daimon is like kind of like our word for demon, I think they're almost certainly related, um, is sort of like, it can mean literally a demon, but it can also mean sort of more like spiritual um, stuff to do with the gods and fate and destiny. So eudaimonia is just kind of like things being good. And it's often translated as the good life, which is quite funny because of the TV series. All the Greek philosophers are basically trying to work out what is the good life? What would that look like? How would it feel? How do we get there? And Plato is all about the forms. So Plato thinks that everything has like a form. So you'd have a form of a chair, a form of a window, but also the form of the good. And these are like the ultimate versions of that that exist kind of somewhere beyond the physical sphere. Um, And the form of the good is the the ultimate form. It's like the most important one. And he's always trying to work out how we get there. And he thinks that it's through wisdom, right? So this is, well, this is Plato very much speaking as Socrates, saying that um, like, knowledge is virtue so the more we know the better we will understand how to be good um but then there's also this bit of you know sometimes plato or socrates speaking through plato says things like but some parts of the soul want bad things right sometimes we want things that are not good for us so that's a really central debate for them it's like how do we measure that up that knowledge is good but also sometimes even when we know what's good we get it wrong so that's what they're struggling with and where does Papa John's fit into that? <laughs> oh, that's uh, Papa John's. Actually, a lot of the time, the words so the bit of the soul that wants good things might be reason. Sometimes the bit of the soul that wants bad things is translated as appetite. So that's exactly where Papa John's fits into that. Oh, my God. I, I really like the idea of a spectrum that has knowledge at one end and Papa John's at the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the absolute opposite of, of sort of intellectual pursuit of the good is your 3am trip to Papa John's. Marcus Aurelius to Andrew Tate, knowledge to Papa John's. (laughs) So before we plateau on Plato, and I do like um, some wordplay, um, a little birdie told me, or a little Avis told me, (laughs) if I was to use a bit of Latin. Oh. Don't humour that, Meg. I know it was bad. Sorry. Um, Sorry. I know we've got some funny etymology to share. I've been looking up just all the words in Greek for good, and they are quite interesting. And I think they do reveal quite a lot about what Greeks thought about the good. Um, So there's lots of different words for good. One of them is megas, obviously my favourite of the words for good. Right. Megas. And that's like great, big, large, kind of sometimes loud. It's just like, it's just good because it's so massive. Like, the largest size pizza you can get from Papa John's. It's just, it's the big one. Um, but it can mean good. So that's like, so Alexander the Great, that would be Megas Alexandros, right? So that's good in that sense. Like the word we use, the way we translate that is great or mighty. There's loads of these different words and they all have a slightly different meaning. So Kalos is like beautiful, good. Agathos is like good, kind of moral, noble, good. But they all interlink and they're all, you know, there's, I think they reveal a lot, to be honest, the fact that there's so many of them. Um, Agathos is where we get Agatha, the name. Is Kalos Callista and things like that. These are all good names. Exactly. So Callistos would mean the most beautiful or the most lovely. 
Um, Kakos, we can maybe talk about next week, is the opposite of Kalos. Kakos is bad. And that might be, we're not, we're not sure, but that might be related to, like, words for shit. It sounds like a bad word as well. It does. Like Booba Kiki. <laughs> Sorry? Booba Kiki. You know the Booba Kiki uh, experiment? <laughs> I don't know. Please, Barney, please. I, I'm the only one here with a psychology degree, and everyone else is useful. <laughs> Please let me share this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But nobody, thing is, nobody will be able to Google it without spoiling it, right? No, exactly. So don't Google it, just listen to my words. Are you ready? Okay. Imagine in front of you two shapes. One is sharp with harsh angles, it's jagged. Um, and the other one is sort of flowing, cloud-like, poofy. I want you to name these two things, but I'm not. you're not going to name them things like Agatha or Callista or Tim or Jeremy or Gavin or Andrea, or Susan, you're going to name one of them Booba, and the other one Keiki. Which which one are you going to ascribe to each thing? Tell me. Keiki is the spiky one. Obviously. Booba is the soft one. Yeah, because boobs are soft and round. Okay. I think it's boobs, right? That's a different strand of psychology. I think that might be slipping. Is this like a raw sack (laughs) test that's going to reveal a lot about me? Everybody seems to agree that the the the, oh, the boob like one, okay, the booby one is booba. <laughs> it's it's a linguistic test designed to show whether certain sounds have certain associations across different language families. So Agatha and, and Callista are quite nice names, and of course Meg is a beautiful name. It's a mega name, one might say. Um, are there any Roman names, Senor, that you can think of that mean good? Oh, well, I have a goddess who's literally called the good goddess, Bona Dea. Uh, and she was the deity of uh, fruitfulness. So this like definition of fruitfulness applies to the earth. So like good harvests and things like that. But it also applies to women as well, fertility in women. Nice. Yeah, she was like a, a women only... Uh, it was only women who worshipped her and only women who participated in her festivals, uh, which caused a little bit of a ruckus one year because a guy called Publius Clodius Pulcher, we've come across him a couple of times, his name, his, his last name, actually means beautiful. So you might come back to him in a later episode. Um, he <laughs> um, was accused of violating the sanctity of her celebrations um, by dressing up as a woman and trying to trying to take part in her celebrations. A bit rude. She's a women's goddess for women. Exactly. It's like when when guys try to break into the Hampstead Ladies Pond, shattering the the sanctity of of Hampstead Heath. Mm. <laughs> Very religious space. It is <laughs> sacred in a sort of um, deep ancient pagan sense i can understand why they want to break in though because there's a lot of things women do when they gather together that are quite mysterious like we paint our toenails and talk about boys and um swap sanitary products and stuff so i can understand the sort of draw to to want to join in i'm just imagining a sanitary towel swapping party is like oh have you tried this extra flappy wings I'm really off topic, aren't I? Anyway, etymology. <laughs> have we got any more from around the ancient globe? I did. I wanted to say one more thing about Kalos, actually, which is that I looked it up and that version of good, so that's kind of beautiful, lovely good, is the one that's used in the um, Greek translations of the Old Testament for, you know, 
and it was good. So, kai eden hotheos hoti kalon means, and, and God saw that it was good. Kalon is the last word there. So I thought that was interesting, that that's, that's the translation that's used when Genesis gets translated into Greek. Kalos, not to be confused with kalos. Yeah, and kalos, kakos, they're very similar. And if you're not very good at writing Greek, which I'm not, you can very easily write a K as a, as a lambda, a kappa as a lambda. They're quite similar, just backwards. So you can do really badly in your ancient Greek translation exams if you, if you mix those up. I had approximately one Spanish lesson in secondary school and I was told the only thing that I need to know about Spanish is the difference between Feliz Años and Feliz Anos because one, you're wishing someone a happy new year and the other one, you're wishing them a happy anus. Exactly. You don't want to, yeah, you definitely don't want to do that and God doesn't want to see that it's bad, right? That would be be terrible. Really rubbish ending for Genesis. Everyone would close (laughs) the book there and not read on. What happens at the end? No spoilers, please. I don't know how long it's been out, but no spoilers. <laughs> Meg, do you happen to know the translation for those instances in the Bible where God himself is good rather than the things that he's made? Oh, that's such a great question. I don't, but I think you might be right. That might be different because in this instance, like he's seeing, right? Aden means he saw. So maybe it's they use the word kalos, which kind of also means beautiful because it's it's good to look at as well as being good in another way. So maybe if it was God being good, they would use a different translation. That's super interesting. I will look it up. I did quite like a mistranslation that would be in God saw what he had made and it was cacos. It was absolutely (laughs) (laughs) If he was like, start again, lads, it's it's no good. (laughs) I've made an Andrew Tate. (laughs) Start again. That sounds like some Cockney rhyming slang. Okay, have we got any more etymologies while well, I've still got the appetite for them? No, although I think if we're trying to make um, etymology hour like a regular thing, maybe we should introduce it or like get some sort of jingle for it. We should. Should we all sing etymology hour in different ways on the count of three? <laughs> okay. Um, to this beat. Da, 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 da. Okay, but you can use whatever note you want. Etymology hour. Wow. Beautiful. Oh, do you know what that wasn't? Kalos. Harmonious. And I've got a I've got a segue if you'd like it. Oh yes, please. Uh, the ancient Greek idea of good was really linked to harmony, not in the musical sense, but in the sense of being sort of in harmony with the things around you. Um that's actually the whole link, but I just thought I'd say it that a bad person would be sort of in disharmony with themselves and with the world. And that if you're in harmony, then that, that means you are living the good life that the, you've achieved, the eudaimonia. So that jingle is sending us all straight to the Greek version of hell. That's terrible. We are living the bad life. So I suppose we are all going to the Greek version of hell. Um, is there anything else that we need to face up to in our afterlives? Maybe we need to be good so we get good place in heaven maybe Ooh, i might be able to pick up on this um so there's a very famous scene in ancient egyptian art funerary art that lots of people might actually remember from primary school because i think it's not uncommon that people in the uk learn about ancient egypt at school um and this is the weighing of the heart uh which is what happens when you die and you're your embalmed body goes down to the underworld or your spirit goes down to the underworld and is 
met with a number of underworld gods who basically judge your life. Um, and this is why the heart is left inside of the mummy's body and not removed with the other organs, because the mummy needs it for putting on these scales. And what the heart is weighed against is a feather. And I think that's what a lot of people would remember from primary school, is that your heart is weighed against a feather. Um, and it needs to be equal in weight or lighter than the feather in order that you'll go on to live a happy afterlife and not get trapped in the underworld. Um, but what this feather actually represents is a uh, Egyptian goddess um, called Mart, which is spelled M-A and then a little stop and then A-T. And um, she, this is a female, female deity, is the sort of representation of truth and order. And if everything is right in the world, um, that means that like Mart it has been has been maintained and has been kept in the correct place. But if if chaos starts to take over, then Mart is all out of whack, basically. Um, and I think this is a fairly good way of thinking about like what might be good. I mean, it's quite abstract in the Egyptian world, uh, but it is just about sort of truth and order and maintaining those two things as sort of like prime directives in leading a stable life. I do quite like that. I mean, a heart apparently weighs on average about 10 ounces. Um, I'm worrying about my own and about how much cholesterol I consume now. Uh, I remember this from primary school. Were there like a sort of a, was there some kind of freeze depicting it with a sort of a weighing scale? And who was it who was doing the weighing? Yeah, so that's exactly it. There are big scales and the scales are another symbol of Mart. Um and Anubis is down there, the jackal-headed god. Yeah, he's a he's an afterlife god. He's, I think, technically the god of like cemeteries and necropolis because he's got a jackal head. And jackals used to hang around places where the dead were buried because they're scavengers. I think that's why he comes to have his particular doggy head. Um, but there's also a crocodile demon down there who eats your heart if uh, if it's heavier. Is it Amut? That's right. Yeah. This is uncovering some deep lore in my uh, in my primary <laughs> school brain. It's um yeah, I remember because I used to have you know you know when you're a child and you worry about things that aren't going to be an issue. Like I used to worry about being abducted by aliens, about falling into quicksand, but I also was very very worried about my um <clears throat> my soul being eaten by a crocodile. And I I think I learned to fear Amut much like a uh, Captain Hook fears a crocodile because it ate his hand. <laughs> Ah, oh, so true. The original scary, scary crocodile. Mm. But um, I, I think that that sort of the idea of maintaining art, maintaining this sense of order. Um, one of the ways to achieve that is obviously by taking proper care of the gods and worshiping and praying and paying your taxes to the temple and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's quite common in the ancient Near East as well. Is to have this positive relationship with the gods is one way to ensure that your life is sort of comfortable and good in a sense, good in the qualitative, like, not bad. Like, not necessarily morally good, but at least, like, positive. Mm. I feel like that's a key distinction, actually. We could talk about um, the hedonists, if you'd like to. What do you think hedonism means in, like, English? Uh, hedonism is like, um, your your main concern is yourself. So you're, you're, you're making good choices for you but not necessarily for other people mm. yeah I think the cliche of like modern hedonism is kind of almost like luxury right like just going a bit wild doing doing luxurious things um but I feel like that's actually a bit unfair on the main uh hedonist in ancient Greece Epicurus who's quite famous who was like not actually very hedonist in the modern sense kind of 
thought that pleasure was the goal of life, but that pleasure was really tied to virtue, which isn't necessarily how we think of hedonism today, or at least in like the modern, yeah, the usage of that word. Um, and there was actually a different group of philosoph- philosophers called the, I never know how to say this, I've never heard it said out loud, but Cyrenaics, Cyrenaics, um, who were like way more, yeah, the only good is pleasure, um, and not even the accumulation of pleasures, but just like individual ones. Some things are nice and we should pursue them. Um, and we can do away with whether it's virtuous. We just want pleasure. So I think that's an interesting alternative perspective. Isn't there a, um, a double misconception as well? Because Epicurus's name is attached to Epicureanism, which is supposed to be like a love of fine things, especially food and drink. But that's also not necessarily what he stood for. Mm, yeah, exactly. I think he's a bit of a bit of a misunderstood guy. He actually thought that you should live like a temperate life um, and avoid kind of rich food and excessive sexual activity and that kind of thing. What would you know? I've got to ask the question. <laughs> what would Epicurus have said about Papa John's? I think it'd be a resolute no. I think he'd have been more a Franco Manca kind of guy. What on earth is a Franco Manca? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I listen. I live. Do you know what? I I live ten miles from the nearest shop. Okay. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's hip. The I, I'm frightened now because I'm without a Nando's. I've moved house. I don't have a Nando's nearby, and Nando's has suddenly gone from the podcast, and we're only talking about Papa John's. I'm a little bit unsettled. <laughs> what what is a what is a Franco Franco Manca is an Irish pizza chain. Oh yes, of course. Irish. Yeah, Frank Omanca. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, that's a really, really terrible joke. I feel so unwell. So after today's episode, I feel very inspired. I feel very good. I feel like I can make good choices moving forward. So I think we should all make good choices. And Zenia, I'm going to start with you. What's a good thing that you can choose to do in the upcoming weeks and months? Uh, well, I really liked um, Gilgamesh's sacrifice of eternal life to the snake, even though it wasn't quite um intentional (laughs) so I think if I have a gift like that I would like to intentionally sacrifice it uh to my daughter oh that's very very uh very good of you um Barney can you top that with goodness uh I will take on board the uh the sort of our pop understanding of Marcus Aurelius's advice and not let the baddies grind down my love of Papa John's nice that is that's actually probably more noble uh Zenia, sorry um <laughs> meg what is your good thing that you're going to be doing from now on i was actually also thinking marcus aurelius i think i should start um journaling you know doing some meditations and and having some good good complex thoughts that people might remember oh my gosh i've gone back on myself maybe i do want to be remembered for my interesting meditations hmm that's true. Okay. Well, you know, that is that is good in a way. I'm going to be good by doing everything you guys said and some more uh, and virtue signaling while I do it. So that's been today's episode on all things good. You can catch us next time for the bad and the time after that for the ugly. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, why not support us on Patreon? Our different support tiers can get you merch, shout outs, and even personalised content. If you want to hear more from Against the Law, find us on Twitter, at Against Law, and we're on Instagram and TikTok. Search for at Against the Law Podcast.